I think we may not very easily express all the time. Uh, has anybody heard the term CENI or CENI? So, um, one of the things that, well, let me ask it this way. Has anybody ever heard a Christian say or write that CENI is a Church of Christ hermeneutic or yeah. a Church of Christ doctrine? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what Doy does, which I really like, is he simplifies it. The CENI basically stands for Command, Example, Necessary Inference. And the way that's typically taught is that from God we get commands, we get examples, and we have certain things that are necessarily implied. Uh, Doy has sort of simplified that to tell, show, and imply. So the sense where God tells us certain things, he shows us certain things, and he has implications. And part of what the point that he makes in Mind Your King and in a lot of things that he does when he talks about authority is making the point that this is in reality, this is how we think. In every aspect of our life, every way we commun communicate our thoughts to others, we either tell it, we either show it, or we imply it. Now, I remember a few years ago, he was having a discussion on Facebook with one of these fellows that is attacking this thought, CENI is the Church of Christ hermeneutic. And he basically said, okay, if there's some other way for us to understand God's will, tell me. You know, or show, or, you know, but you can't tell it to me, right? You can't show it to me, right? You can't imply it to me. Because if you do that, you're ascribing to the hermeneutic that you are criticizing. So that's what we're up against. We're up against brethren today even saying that this idea of command, example, necessary inference, what really we're talking about is the things that God tells us to do, the things that we see in the Bible, people doing who are following God, and then the things that God implies, the things that are, by the way, necessary implications. And I don't want to go too far into that because I hope to get into that some with my sermon next week. But were there any uh, questions or comments about uh, Mark's lesson before we get too far? All right, so we do want to look at Mark 7, and we're going to be reading the first 13 verses. Um, Mr. Gary, if you would read that, please. 1 through 13. 1 through 13. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of the disciples eat bread and with defiled, that is, unwashed, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and captains. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well, Isaiah, well did Isaiah prophesy of your hypo, of your of you hypocrites, as it is written, "This people honored me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, "All too well you reject the commandments of God, that you may keep your tradition." For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, 
that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him uh, do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your traditions, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So, traditions, I believe, are where God's authority can intersect with our own application of his commands. God's authority is universal, right? Does God still have authority whether we obey him or not? Does God still have control over creation and existence, whether we obey him or not? So, what we come into understanding here, and what uh, really people misunderstand with passages like this is, and we'll talk about this a little bit, that tradition is somehow against the authority or the will of God. Problems with paradigms, right? So, you know, law is completely opposite from grace. That's what people will say, right? Or that uh, faith is completely opposite from works. Uh, But it's important for us to learn from Jesus concerning tradition. And what we find in the scriptures is that there are really three types of tradition. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, please. 2 Thessalonians 2. We're going to go back to Mark 7 and kind of step through that textually in just a moment. But I'd like us first to go to 2 Thessalonians 2 and read verse 15. 2 Thessalonians 2. In verse 15, Miss Sandra, if you wouldn't mind. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Okay, is Paul in that letter, is he talking about their cultural traditions or their traditions as Gentiles? or Where do they get these traditions? They're taught directly from the apostles or from the letter. Yeah, I think whether by word would imply spiritual word or divine word, or our epistle, our letters, the apostolic tradition. So these are divine traditions. So there are divine traditions. We see, secondly, as we already read in Mark 7, that there are traditions that will contradict God's word. Man-made traditions play and hamper our ability to serve God. So that's a second type of tradition. Then thirdly, I would say we find, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, I believe we find in the word what we can refer to as expediencies or optional methods that we can hold on to as traditions. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Corey? But everything must be done decently and in order. Alright. So in that passage, remember Paul is talking about the worship assembly. And there are some things in that passage that really don't apply to us today, right? Speaking in tongues, other things that are being talked about there that are going on with spiritual gifts, okay? But there are some things that do apply to us, right? The, uh, the sense of the women not leading or teaching in those assemblies, things such as that, I think we can understand that that still applies because there's nothing in the Word to pull that out. And so when he says, let all things be done in decent, decently and in order, that's an all-encompassing thing, right? And that gives us a guide to go by. So with everything we do for God in the worship assembly, it must be done in order, right? 
Now that doesn't create something else, okay? We go back to, we fall back on the fact that what has been revealed has been revealed, and we go by that. But we want to, I want us to understand that when we look at tradition, the word tradition, the thoughts of traditions, by itself is neither bad nor good. Some people might say traditions hold us back. If I'm being traditional, well, that's going to get in the way of my faith. Anybody ever heard something like that? We can't be traditional. We can't be stodgy and just, you know, can't be traditional. Others might say, however, we need to hold to our traditions because this is the way we've always done it at this church. Anybody ever heard that? Or maybe you've heard, we need to hold on to these traditions because, hey, if we do otherwise, we, make, we may make some people uncomfortable, so we're just not going to do that. Anybody heard that? Both of those viewpoints are unbiblical and unscriptural, and they will lead to error. We need to learn that. We can abandon God's traditions for our own desires, right? If I have an unenthusiastic by-the-numbers worship, what does that leave me open to? What had happened with God's people by the time that Malachi wrote his book? Were they doing the right thing? Precisely. They were doing the right things, but it was just sort of rote, right? And so we need to cultivate zeal, right, by holding on to the traditions that have been handed down by God through the apostles. Jesus makes this statement in Luke 9, 48, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus sent forth the apostles. And he intended for us to receive the apostles as if he himself was saying it. And so that takes us to understand that that apostolic tradition, that is what we hold on to. We do not abandon God's traditions for our own desires, for what makes us feel good or what might be something that make us make us fit in better with other churches, right? However, we can also force our opinion, what I would say our expediency, our own optional method upon someone else. The fact is, I can read, I can study, I can consider these things and come to a certain conclusion that might be right for me, but it might not be right for others. Not in terms of the universal and clear teachings of Scripture. We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about the purpose of the church or the works of the church. All of these things. I want to be completely clear here. But we're talking about preferential issues or places where Scripture is not completely clear. What, yes, sir? I'm sure you're going there, but I, it, obviously you're chasing that expediency. And, and when you're saying those things, just you know, everybody's got to understand that it's not even expedient if it doesn't edify. Precisely. Absolutely. So, what I'm thinking of specifically in examples, order of worship. Do we have to have the sermon after the Lord's Supper? No, we could switch that around if we wanted to. There's, I'm sorry? (laughs) You can even even go further on that. I've I've been to places where they don't want that. I mean. Oh yeah, well, sure. I mean, that's what I'm saying, you know, projectors or, or, or 
things like that. And hey, I mean, we need to be careful of each other's consciences, yeah. and and we need yeah. to be willing to to give and be flexible. Yeah. At the same time, we need to be willing to look and study together. I mean, again, so yeah, and it it kind mm-hmm. of falls back to what you were saying. You know, like for me, you know, you you put in a PowerPoint presentation. You know, I can see, you know, maybe charts or something. You know, it might be something there that helps. But you know, for another person, it can be might become the distraction. Yeah, so, and it. You know, that, that I think we have to be so careful now. I mean, I think that's what's happening to when we come into a lot of the, the, the arguments in the congregations a lot of times. You know, I think we have, we, we, we're holding our own heart to what we want to do instead of forgetting what we need to be doing. And right. You made the point where open but conscious. Paul mentions in Romans 14, uh, verses 3 and 4, let, him, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now that passage, again, is not something we can plaster all over everything, right? We recognize that. But at the same time, here is God saying, I accept the one who eats meat, and I accept the one who doesn't eat meat. And so I don't think that that just applies to eating meat, but I think there's, we need to be careful that, uh, that we don't go too far with that. But while we insist upon what's right and encourage each other toward what's right, right, we have to be flexible. Issues that we cannot be completely sure of must be treated with utmost care and compassion, right? We need to be careful with those things. First uh, Corinthians eight nine and thirteen you know, verses nine says, "Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to those who are weak." Paul makes the statement in verse thirteen, First Corinthians eight. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So whether I seek to permit or prohibit by my guidance of Scripture, I have a responsibility not to damage the faith of others. Right. So as we look at this, we must insist upon the traditions of God, but we also must consider why we follow them. We need to make sure we understand why we follow them. Let's look at the tradition of the Passover for just a couple of passages here. Exodus 12. Exodus 12. Yes, sir. You know, when you just read that about, you know, from 1 Corinthians 8, we apply too that, you know, we need to be willing to... Go to the brother too. Mm-hmm. You know, not just holding our heart and start building grudges. I mean, right. We get we got to be able to be open to hey, Stephen. That that kind of bothers me. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to, you know, we got to have that both open relationship both ways. You know, to yeah. be able to work through that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. You know. I mean, just for, in in my thought. Well, and I don't want to go too far yeah. on examples here. I've got a lot to cover, but yeah. But I but I appreciate that thought. I was about to chase a rabbit. I'm sorry. Uh, Exodus 12. Let's look at 24 through 27. Miss April, if you don't mind. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, and you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say, say to you, what do you mean by this service? that you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt 
when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our household. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So is that... No. Obviously not. Reference in Second Chronicles 18, of course, and it says, There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept, with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel, who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So between what we just read in Exodus and between that time, there were ebbs and flows, right? What the Bible seems to suggest, and what we see in life, the pattern typically tends to, be, tends to be the first generation holds to that word faithfully, right? What does the second generation do? Typically it clings to it, but it may not understand why they cling to it. And I think what we find in our recent history, you have a generation that fought through institutional divisions of the 50s and 60s that understood why this was the truth generally. Then you have another generation after it that I think there are some that may have held on to that just for peace's peace sake, but still don't really understand what occurred. And then you have a third generation that comes up that has no idea why this should be something they follow anyway, and they go out into the world. So we have a responsibility. Our children need to know not just what to do, but why we do it. This is why we hold on to these traditions, because God has laid down these traditions, not because this is something that makes us comfortable, not because this is something that makes us feel good, but because this is what God has said. That needs to be our unifying presence. That needs to be what we understand about this. That informs us when we get back into Mark 7. What, what had happened, right? From exile, they established the proper worship of God. They were done with idols. But at some point, this group called the Pharisees, in the period of silence, this group called the Pharisees came up. And the Pharisees' main focus and idea was hold strictly to the law of God. Now, is that a good motive? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, where we have to understand, that thought was not what led to what happened. Because what ended up happening is actually the same thing that happened from the span of, I'd say, the, the 2nd century to the 5th century. You know, well, wherever, how long it took to, to get to the Catholic Church, right? Uh, this sense where, okay, we're going to unify everything and we're going to define what this means, right? So the Sabbath day's journey, the Pharisees defined that. The Pharisees had a law in uh, the Talmudic law that basically said if a woman was sewing in one corner of the room and puts a needle in her dress and walks across the room on the Sabbath day, she is carrying a burden and therefore has violated the Sabbath. You talk talk about needling about things. That's a terrible pun. But uh, that's what had happened. And that's what Jesus is exposing in this passage. They are uh, criticizing his disciples because they're not walking according to the tradition of God or who? Men. Men, the tradition of the elders. They found fault. But, in fact, you know, these traditions with the Pharisees, it had gotten to the point where these things they had added to the law were just as binding as the law itself. And I mentioned early church history. That's what happened that created the Catholic Church, basically, down the road, is eventually someone said, well, it's okay for us just to have one elder in a church. It's okay for us to have an elder over a group of churches. 
And they codified that. They wrote that down in their laws, and it started with these confessions of faith. And eventually the confessions of faith became more powerful than the scripture itself in people's minds. And thus that's where we get creeds. But that's basically the same concept here. Now this tradition of hand washing, was it wrong in and of itself? No. But what they're doing with it, they're judging others unrighteously with this. Now, I want to look at something that Jesus says in his criticism of them. He's talking about Isaiah, right? And he's quoting from Isaiah. Let's look back at the passage that I believe he's quoting, Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. And we're going to read Isaiah 29, verse 13. Jerry Green, when you have that, please. Trying to get there. Yeah, that's fine. Isaiah 20, 29, 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed me, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the commandment of men. Look at the difference here. Teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Then you go back to Isaiah, their fear toward the commandment of men. I think it's an interesting variation there. And that helps me understand something. Where does our fear of God come from? Should come from from Him, from a recognition of who He is. And I should get to that point on my own, right? Now, it doesn't mean that I can't get help along the way to get to that point. But the answer to this, this question, where does my fear of God come from? Why do I serve Him? If I answer that question, it will guide much of how I treat others. If we serve God out of fear, if we serve God out of a sense of, well, this is just what I've been taught, this is what I know is right, because I can read it, and you know, I'm just afraid. I just I'm afraid to disobey God. And if that guides every aspect of my being, if I never grow out of that mindset to have a love for God that says, this is the right thing to do, then I'm never going to have an attitude of grace towards someone else. I will have an expectation of my way or the highway. This mindset can lead us to destroy someone's faith. Again, 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18 Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. We don't have much about them, but you know, we need to recognize that there are souls in the balance, and that the way that we act, the way the things that we hold to, can in fact uh, affect others. Uh, we should never be guilty of holding to the traditions of men more than God's traditions. I know that that ought to be obvious, right? But just as what Mark was saying last hour, is it easy for us to conflate that and get it confused? And think that the, the traditions that we want to hold on to are the same thing? Absolutely. So in Romans 12, uh, I think it was mentioned last week, And I thought about this too. I think it's a really good passage for us to bring up. Romans 12 and verse 1. New King James in my Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Uh, The E has it a little bit different. 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And uh, there are other appearances of this word. Um, uh, Mark, I think, focused on the word spiritual, which is logikos or logikos, whatever. I did write down how to pronounce this one uh, for word. And uh, that word appears in other spots. And these are all from the ESV, John 16, 2. Talking about, he says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And for uh, the giving of, uh, he talks about their Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Hebrews 9, verse 1, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly place of holiness. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Personally, and this is just me, I believe that reasonable service is a weak translation of that word. Uh, I do think that spiritual worship is more spot on. Now, people will take this and say, well, that means that anything we do in life is worship, and so we can bring anything we want out of life into our worship, because it's still worship. Well, that's a logic fail. That, that makes absolutely no sense. But it's a sense of, I believe what Paul is saying here is that our worship, our spiritual worship, our service to him is a daily thing. This is not just something that we do in assembly. We do this every day. And if we don't hold to God's word in our hearts every day, we will become stagnant. We will not grow. Are we truly keeping a mindset of worship toward God? Or are we so worried about the ways that we've always done it that we're unable to serve God with grace and humility? 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, he says, teach others also. Yes, sir. Verse 2 tells us, it informs verse 1. Oh, absolutely. You know, that it's this, this idea of giving up of your own will. You know, this, this idea that it, it makes sense for you then right. to give up your own ideas about whatever this is. Right? Precisely. That, that you transform your mind to his mind. You hold to the traditions of God. That's it. Right. Um, And further, when we look back at Mark 7, Jesus is laying bare the error of the Pharisees. Because by holding to that tradition, they were laying aside the commandment of God. Um, Beyond laying aside the commands of God, really Jesus is telling them they, they plainly reject them. And really, is there any difference? Right. If I lay aside God's command, it's the same thing is if I've rejected it. Uh, in fact, what we find in this passage is that they were betraying the truth for dishonest gain. In the tradition of the elders, it was held that a man could use part of his parents' estate as a gift to God. Doing so would free him from having to be obligated to support his father and mother. So uh, they're using one of the traditions that they had made up or had put together, which... You know, the tradition itself, uh, in some state, might not be bad in some cases, but the sense of interfering with honoring his father and mother, that's the issue here. So there's a lot that we can understand here. Men's traditions can interfere with God's word. You know, you think about the false doctrine that's been propagated over so long. Catholicism, Calvinism... Uh, denominations in general, instrumental music in the worship. Some traditions really are simply ways, however, that we can choose to do what God expects us to do.
Is there one single way that God expects us to go out and evangelize? I think generally we can say that, yeah, we go talk to them about the gospel. But does God give us a method for travel? Does God give us a method for all that? No. So there, there are ways that we decide how to carry that out. I think there are certainly some ways that would interfere with it. If we set up a stand and we're selling something, we're saying, hey, you know, Bible studies for $5, you know, that's going to be a problem. And it should be obvious that that should be a problem. Even, but I mean, even, I mean, you can look at so many different aspects that our, tra- our way of travel, I mean, for quote, riding a beer truck, you know, to, you know, that or, mm-hmm. or I mean, because, I mean, it's kind of come up with things that I've done, I mean, just from what I do. I mean, right. You know, that, you know, and if somebody questioned me, you know, I had, I had to be able to explain that out. Yeah. Know, and, and, and that's what I'm saying. I mean, you, you know, that's, yeah. that's why I was kind of coming back to the projector system or whatever, you know, that it, it's just we got to be able to really be able to explain, yeah. you know, and how our methods are. And I think what we have to recognize with that, too, I mean, uh, I could go into a bar on a Friday night and try to evangelize, right? That may not within itself be wrong. It could give someone the wrong idea if they see me going into it. I think that's obvious. But then the real question is how, how profitable is that going to be? Yeah. You're not going to get far. I'm just telling you, I, 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 at least in my mind. But the whole point that we want to see is that when we feel like something's going wrong or we're becoming stagnant or things just aren't going the way that they ought to, sometimes our thought is just, we got to do something. We got to change something. So let's get some mood lights in here. Let's get some, let's get some uh, speakers in here with some mood music. Just get us into the feeling more. Well, we ought to see that that's not the result, that, right? That's not the answer. And we have to recognize that it's not just do something. The something we need to do is get back to the Bible to renew our understanding of the traditions that God wants us to observe. So we need to cling to God's traditions. That's really the title of this lesson is clinging to to tradition. And some people, I think, cling to their traditions because they're comfortable with them. Sometimes people cling to the right thing because it makes them comfortable. Because this is what daddy and mama did. This is what grandpa did. And that's wrong. And I, I have a sense where we're going to be facing God in judgment for that. And we need to honestly look at ourselves and understand why am I serving God? What's the point of all this? What is the purpose of this? True revival comes from within. Externals aren't going to change my soul. The things that I do outside aren't necessarily going to change me. It has to start from within. And those outer actions follow. Right, And the wonderful thing about this is that when we hold to God's traditions, does God's word ever change? Does he ever change? We know what we're going to get with him. Let's hold to that.